0: A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You
1: know, the biggest things to me, like I said, are preparation and trying to take advantage of Opportunities, whether it's internships or availabilities in high school and and college as well.
0: Today's show is brought to you by Roy's Umbrella. I've worked with Roy for years, and trust me on this, folks. You can count on Roy's Umbrella for a very low rate on your home loan. And here's what you're going to love. No tricks, no nonsense, no extra charges at the end. And they have been unbelievably loyal to me. I kind of like the way they do business. It's kind of the old-fashioned way. It's face-to-face. They want to get to know you. Trust me, they will do great work for you. Just check out roysumbrella.com for all of your home loan needs. That's Roy's Umbrella.com. Dot com. My guest on today's podcaster, the only sportscaster who currently does play by play for all four professional sports leagues in the United States and Canada. He has worked multiple Olympic games. He has partnered with, this is hard to believe with more than 200 analysts throughout his career. And maybe most importantly, I would imagine has the only mother who can say she beat Dr. J in a game no. of horse. That would be Kenny Albert. How are you, Kenny?
1: That's a true story. I'm great, Grant. How are you?
0: I am doing good. That is a fascinating story. For those that missed it the first time around, refresh our memory.
1: Well, my father, during his days broadcasting the Knicks and, of course, uh, the NBA and NBC, back in the 70s, though, before his national duties, he also was doing the local sports on the 6 and 11 o'clock news in New York on WNBC, and he became friendly with a number of local athletes, and, and one of those was Julius Irving, Dr. J. And back when I was probably eight, nine, 10 years old, on occasion, we would go to the Irving household to his kids' birthday parties, and they would come to our house a couple of times. And I remember Dr. J playing tennis in our backyard and and even playing basketball. We had a a regulation hoop and a six-foot hoop on the driveway. So we actually played a couple of two-on-two games uh, with and against Dr. J. But on one of the occasions at his house, the adults broke out in a horse game. And uh, Julius Irving and my mother, who was probably in her late 30s at the time, maybe early 40s, they were the last two standing, and she actually won the game. I remember she hit a, a corner jump shot to win the game.
0: That's unbelievable. You know, you talk about that memory as a child. For most of us growing up, we idolized our athletes, and it was such a big deal to even get close to a professional athlete, regardless of the sport. You started going to Madison Square Garden with your dad at such an early age, and you were always around professional athletes. Was it just kind of like the norm for you? Were you in awe of any of these athletes, or was it just kind of like, well, that's what we do here at the Albert household?
1: Really, both Grant. It became somewhat of the norm, but I was in awe of a lot of the athletes. Some of the others who who I got to know pretty well who would visit our house at times were uh, Chico Resch, who was the goalie with the Islanders and the Devils, and Dave Jennings, who was the punter for the Giants. Uh, They were both close with with my parents and with my family, and the late Dave Jennings was a terrific broadcaster as well after his playing career, as is Chico Resch. He is still a New Jersey Devils broadcaster, so... I always enjoy bumping into him at various games, you know. But I also would tag along to games at Madison Square Garden and some of the other local arenas and stadiums. And as a kid, I would collect autographs and I would keep scrapbooks. So it was just such a big part of my childhood, and and I still have great memories thirty and forty years later.
0: Hard to believe that at age six you actually did stats for your dad at a Rangers game. Amazing.
1: That was uh, in Washington. It was the first year uh, the Washington Capitals were playing in the nhl they were an expansion team 74 75 and i i always told the story that i was six but it turns out when, when i went back and did some research i actually was seven so okay uh, i was a lot older than I was a lot older than you
0: thought <laughs> and more mature uh, yes <laughs> because right. my
1: birthday's in february their first season was 74 75 and it was a a, a trip for my birthday so i had just turned seven actually and it was a bizarre night uh the Ice Capades or a similar type ice show had been in Landover, Maryland the night before at what was then the Capitol Center, which later became the U.S. Air Arena. And we arrived at the game, the Capitals-Rangers game, and the ice was blue. Hmm. It was unplayable uh, for for a National Hockey League game. And the ice crew had to work on it for a couple of hours, and I think they started the game around 8.30 or 9 o'clock at night. And I was there uh, with my father tagging along to watch the game. And because it started so late, the the regular statistician had a really early flight in the morning. So he left after the second period. So I took over the duties and actually kept the stats as a seven-year-old. I had just turned seven for the third period of that game.
0: Unbelievable. Uh, At age six and then at age 14, you became full-time stats for the Rangers, did you not?
1: Right. Well, that was for the radio broadcasts yep. um, that he was working alongside Sal Messina. And I did a couple of games then. And then over the next few years, 15, 16 in high school, I would take the train in from Long Island and I would keep the stats for the uh, Rangers radio broadcast.
0: Kenny Albert uh, is joining us today on the podcast. What a fascinating uh, career, and it really is only in the middle of it. You got so much uh, ahead of you. Thinking about doing all the hockey games, the NBA, Major League Baseball, uh, the the NBA. You've always said, correct me if I'm wrong, right? Your your favorites are hockey and basketball. Is that correct? Why is that?
1: Well, I never really come out and say what my, what my favorite sports are. You know, I'm very fortunate to work at all four grand and to to a different extent. Um, I've done hockey for 30 years now, started in the minor leagues in Baltimore back in 1990 and then moved on to Washington for three years. And since 1995, I've been with the New York Rangers and added duties with NBC about a decade ago. Very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time when, when Fox acquired the NFC package away from CBS in 1994, and they hired a number of young announcers and Very proud to say that a number of us, including Joe Buck and myself, are still at Fox all these years later. And then Fox added baseball, so I've worked 10 to 15 baseball games a year. And along with my duties at MSG, doing the Rangers on the radio, I also slide over and and fill in for Mike Breen on about 15 to 20 TV games per year. So all of the stars have aligned as far as the the various networks that I work for. As a kid, growing up on Long Island, I loved all four. I loved hockey, football, baseball, basketball. Went to more hockey and basketball games than the other sports, but I would watch them all on TV. And I also played hockey. It wasn't very good, but I did play club hockey, both in high school and college, and that that was my goal, was to do hockey on the radio. And, and that's what I had hoped to do, and that's what I started doing in 1990, and I'm still doing these years later, but I always joke that asking which sport you like better is, is like asking which kid you like better. <laughs> some people right. some people will answer the question, some won't, but <laughs> right. they, they're all so special. I mean there's nothing yeah. like one o'clock on a Sunday when an NFL game kicks off and I've worked five divisional playoff games where there are, you know, over thirty million people watching. Now you never think about it like that. I, I go into every sure. broadcast that I'm sure you do as well, uh, whether it's a preseason NBA game or a postseason NFL game I prepare the same way, but also really enjoy, you know, doing baseball and traveling around to the various stadiums. And it's been such a thrill to work those 15 or 20 Knicks games per year with, with the great Walt Clyde Fraser is just so much fun.
0: Talking about Walt Clyde Fraser, He was uh, one of my idols growing up along with Willis Reed. I grew up in the sixties. And of course, you know this, but I'm I'm going to tell you what it was like for me growing up on Long Island during that period of time and listening to your dad do not only the Knicks on radio, but the Rangers and then rush over to do uh, the sports on channel four, uh, which was just fascinating. His schedule for me, but Uh, when I was in junior high school, uh, I used to record your dad doing both the Rangers and the Knicks games, and uh, I would bring in the highlights and we would all listen to them at homeroom before the first bell rang, and then if we had a big class assembly at Southwoods Junior High School in Syosset, and it ran short, uh, well, we couldn't leave until the bell rang, rang, so they would start chanting out, Grant, 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 and I would have to go up on the stage and do a mock play-by-play of the Rangers or the Knicks, and I, I had commercial that I memorized that your dad did during the game, but what's fascinating? Eastern Airlines, the yeah. Wings of Man, and the second largest passenger carrier in the free world. Don't forget about that.
1: You know, there you go. <laughs> I could just imagine you and Chris Mad Dog Russo <laughs> huddling up in homeroom <laughs> yeah. listening to these wow. tapes of Knicks and Rangers games in the
0: 1970s. <laughs> yeah, our homeroom teacher didn't like it too much. It was we were <laughs> it was loud and it was unbelievable. But you know this. But the reason why I'm mentioning this is. Uh, I'm just always amazed throughout the years uh, whether I'm interviewing someone, let's say, like Ted Robinson or, you know, uh, announcers that live, you know, in different parts of the country but have had such an impact in their career because of your dad. And I just wonder, I'm throwing just a dart up against the wall here, how many of us are in this career because of the Alberts, but mostly because of your dad, because we had to listen to the games on radio back then. We couldn't even really watch games on TV. And if they were, they were on tape delay. How many times have someone come up to you and said, gee, I'm a sportscaster because of your dad?
1: It it does happen all the time. And, you know, I was the same way. We didn't have cable TV in our neighborhood until I was 18. I was about to leave for college. So sure. I was a big radio listener. Now, of course, I had the added bonus that I was able to tag along and go to games with him and, and keep the stats and sit next to him during Knicks games, during Rangers games, during football games. But yes, I do hear that all the time. And, you know, when I think back to those days, you mentioned when he would run back and forth doing the six and 11 o'clock news and the Knicks and Rangers, that pretty much coincided with with my 12 years, you know, from first grade through senior year in high school. Those were the years that he, that he did the 6 and 11 o'clock news from around 1973 or 74 until 86 or 87. I think he gave up the the news right around that time. I think I was a freshman in college in 86, 87. So, you know, I remember tagging along, you know, going to the WNBC studios in the afternoon and, and he would do the 6 o'clock news and then race downstairs and get in the car and drive to the garden. And back then the game started at 7.30, so it was a little easier. Now they start at 7 o'clock. So, I'm not sure if he would be able to pull it off these days. And at halftime or between periods, he would be on the phone with his producer, Dave Katz, and they'd be going over the eleven o'clock show and he'd get in the car when the game ended and get back about ten fifteen or ten twenty and then do the sports segment at around eleven fifteen and then get home about twelve thirty and do the same thing the next day. And back then, the the radio broadcasts were primarily home games. So he wasn't traveling as much during the week. it was It was home games for the most part but then on the weekends he would he would do an NFL game or do boxing or do a baseball pregame show for NBC so you know again some of the greatest memories i have are tagging along going to games going to the studios at 30 rock and then actually the final the final time that i ever did statistics i had already been working in baltimore i had done minor league hockey for 2 years and i was about to start my first nhl job with the washington capitals in 92 But my last hurrah as a statistician with him was actually in Barcelona for the Dream Team games in 92. And it brought back so many memories watching Last Dance uh, during the spring and summer. Um, I had a front row seat to all of those games and was keeping the stats for NBC in Barcelona.
0: And while doing the Baltimore Skipjacks, your roommate was Barry Trotz. And I can't even imagine the pride and joy for you seeing him uh, win a Stanley Cup with Washington and that friendship, uh, that's pretty special, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I know you have longtime friendships with, you know, George McPhee, who was the general manager on the other side in that Stanley Cup final with the, with the Vegas Golden Knights and a couple of other folks in, in the world of sports in the NHL and NBA. So you certainly know how it is to sure. become close with folks really before they come famous, before they become NHL head coaches, general managers, NBA head coaches. And I was hired by the Baltimore Skipjacks during that summer of 1990 to do the radio and also help out in the office doing sales and marketing and public relations and picking players up at the airport and really whatever it took at the minor league level. And I wouldn't trade those two years in for anything. They were, it was just an unbelievable learning experience. And I got to do all of the games on radio. So that's 160 reps of hockey radio broadcasts at the professional level. And to save money in the American Hockey League, sometimes the radio announcer would be paired up on the road with with the bus driver in (laughs) in a hotel room. But in our case, they put the radio guy with the assistant coach. I was 22 years old. Barry Trotz, I think, was 27 at the time. We met for the first time in July of 1990, and we wound up rooming together for two seasons on the road. He became the head coach in February of my second year. And I'll never forget him telling me, let's not break the karma. We've worked <laughs> together for this long. We'll we'll do it, even though I'm the head coach now for the remainder of the season, even though he was entitled to his own room at that point. My first year with the Skipjacks in 1991, Washington traded for a veteran defenseman as a depth player, and they wound up sending him down to Baltimore for about half the season. Well, he's now become the second winningest coach in NHL history with three Stanley Cups, Joel Quenville. He was wow. actually a player on our Skipjacks team, so we had... Barry Trotz and Joel Quinville on the bus together for all those road trips. And they're now, you know, both Stanley cup winning head coaches and among the greatest, head coaches of all
0: time. You know what I love about your story? I mean, Albert is synonymous with sportscasting. I mean, we talk about your dad, but we talk about his brothers and Alan, Steve. And you go up through the ranks. But I love the fact that, you know, you went through a period of time where you really paid your dues and that it wasn't just given to you on a silver platter. And the reason why I bring this up is I talked to Joe Buck about this uh, a couple of months ago and obviously growing up with such a famous dad in, in Jack. But you have established your career it, it again, started off in the minors, not making a lot of money, doing all those long trips and so on and so forth. But to establish yourself now, at this point in your career, being able to do all four major sports, and again, you're the only one in North America that does that. And you're not one that talk about yourself a lot, and you don't pat yourself on the back, and I get that. But deep down, how proud are you of that? That's amazing.
1: Well, first of all, I, I always remind myself how fortunate I am. The fact that with Fox, I'm able to do football and baseball, and I've done some boxing in the past and hockey back when Fox had the NHL in the late 90s, and with MSG hockey and, and some basketball and the NBC hockey as well. It all kind of fits together like a jigsaw puzzle. But, you know, as far as doing all four, and I'm, I know that I am the only one, uh, you know, currently that, that's involved in all four, although I didn't do any baseball this year due to the pandemic in the shortened season, and I was up in Edmonton during the hockey bubble, but there are normal times I am involved in all four, but there have been many others. There's a list out there somewhere. I know there are at least 10 or 15 play-by-play announcers who have done all four. Now, maybe not necessarily concurrently, not at the same time. For example, guys like Bob Washusen and Ted Robinson. I know they are two uh, current play-by-play broadcasters. Sean McDonough, I think, has done all four. You know, back in the day, Marty Glickman and then Spencer Ross, a couple sure. of my uncles are on the list. So <laughs> there have been others right. that have done all four at different times, but I'm not sure if anyone has ever done it simultaneously. I know Bob Wolf's on the list, who was a Hall of Fame sure. broadcaster back in the 50s, 60s and 70s. But um, I do have to step back once in a while and, and remind myself how lucky I am and fortunate to be involved in, in doing everything that I'm doing.
0: Did I read somewhere that for you, you think baseball is the most difficult sport to do?
1: Uh, To me personally, I think it's the most challenging. Now, I'm sure the guys that do it all the time, you know, the Gary Cohens and Howie Roses who do 162 games, you know, Michael Kay here in New York, you know, they probably wouldn't feel the same way. But to me, and I get asked this question all the time, Grant, speaking to high school and and college uh, broadcasting students at the various camps throughout the year. To me personally, hockey is the easiest. Now, most people would think I'm crazy to say that because of all the difficult pronunciations and, and the, 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 the speed that the game is played at and, and the line changes, the fact that the players are changing on the fly. But uh, to me personally, a hockey game is, is 60 minutes and the puck is in action. If you're the play-by-play guy, especially on the radio, you're describing the play for those 60 minutes. There's not a lot of downtime. Basketball is similar, although it's slower, 48 minutes and there are probably more stoppages, but similar to hockey as far as the, the play-by-play call. Football to me is the most rhythmic. It's one play and then it's 20 or 25 seconds. Then it's another play and it's 20 or 25 seconds. Baseball, the the ball's only in action for seven to 11 minutes per game. And hopefully you have a great color analyst. And I've been real fortunate to work with uh, guys like Tim McCarver, who's probably the best ever doing baseball and, and many others who help fill in that time, you know, between pitches, between plays. So Again, the, the, the men and women who do baseball on a consistent basis probably wouldn't look at it that way, but you know that's my opinion. And then, of course, you have the differences between TV and radio, where on radio, in particular, basketball and hockey, you really have to describe everything that's going on out there. You have to give the time and the score a lot more often. On TV, you can pull back. You don't have to say as much. You can leave more room for your color analyst to, to get in and speak.
0: It was just recently that we learned that uh, we would not be listening to uh, the most unbelievable hockey announcer maybe that's ever lived in Doc Emmerich. I say Doc Emmerich, you say what?
1: I say he's the Vince Scully of hockey. Wow. He's just an absolute treasure. He's a gentleman. I've known Doc Emmerich for 35 years and he's the best. He's you know, he he's poetry in action, he's a wordsmith. And to anyone who's never heard Doc Emmer call a hockey game, if you're familiar familiar with Vin Scully, he's the Vin Scully of the sport of hockey.
0: He will be missed. Uh, there's no question about that. And that brings me to the Olympics. And you've done, you know, a lot of Olympic hockey. And there are so many international players now in the National Hockey League. But you've done games in the Olympics that uh, when the United States is not playing. How challenging is it to do international competition with, you know, two international teams, one not being either the United States or Canada. You talk about pronunciations. I know you and you you are so prepared. You were such a stickler for homework, preparation and getting every name right. And I, the reason why I'm bringing this up is I talked to Mike Breen and he did basketball in the Olympics and he did games that didn't involve the United States, both women and men. And he just said that was the most challenging uh, job that he's ever had just to make sure he got all the pronunciations correct.
1: It is challenging, Grant. It's a lot of fun, but it is challenging. Uh, you brought up Doc Emmerich. The first Olympics I worked were in 2002 in Salt Lake City, Utah, the Winter Olympics for NBC. And I received a phone call about a week before the start of the Olympic Games. Mike Emmerich was scheduled to work hockey along with Gary Thorne at the time. And and Mike has told the story on numerous occasions, so I'm certainly not speaking out of turn. Mike stayed home because his his dog had cancer. And Mike and his wife, Joyce, they've spent a good portion of their adult lives uh, around animals, taking care of animals, uh, dogs and horses. And he did not want to leave his wife home for three weeks with the sick dog. So believe it or not, that's how I received my first opportunity to work Olympic hockey. So here I am uh, a week before the Olympic Games. And now all of a sudden I have to get ready for, you know, 12, 15, 20 teams, men's and women's hockey. I was familiar with the NHL players, of course, but there were a number of other teams and countries on the men's side with not many NHL players. And then, aside from the U.S. and Canada, who I was familiar with on the women's hockey side, all of these other countries. One of my first games was a women's hockey game between the U.S. and China. And as you can imagine, the the names on the, the China roster were pretty challenging, and I figured this is the Olympics. There'll be all this information available to us. Somebody handed me a pronunciation guide about five minutes before the start of the game. (laughs) And fortunately, the U.S. team was so much better. They weren't even in the same league as China. China hardly had the puck. So on a TV broadcast where you pull back anyway, I I did not have to mention too many names throughout the course of this game. The U.S. probably had 70 shots on goal, and the, the goalie for China was great, and her nickname was The Great Wall. But mm. so we refer to her as the great wall threat. That's game. beautiful. Uh, but, but that was certainly challenging. Now, in later years, working in the Olympics, similar situations. You know, I, I might have a game between Belarus and Kazakhstan, for example. And, you know, you had to study the names and learn the names. But as you could appreciate, once you once you work a team once, the names kind of sink in. So then if I had the same country two or three times, it would get a lot easier. Um, I would have women's hockey games, you know, between Russia and South Korea, for example, in 2018. So definitely challenging, a lot of fun. Oftentimes at the Olympics, we would work two games a day and you would do the games and you would go back to your hotel and you get ready for the two games the next day. And it was the same way for about uh, 10 to 12 days. But again, wouldn't trade it in for anything. It, it's been a great experience to work the Olympics. Now, when I was at Edmonton in the NHL bubble for 37 days, We did have a lot of two-game days and even uh, a couple of three-game days, but those were a lot easier because it's the NHL teams, it's the players you're so familiar with, and it was the same teams because they were involved in Best of seven series. So you're seeing the same teams over and over again.
0: A couple of weeks ago I made uh, uh, kind of a I have a thing called Grant's rant every day and I ranted about the media making a big deal out of Joe Buck doing seven games and seven nights doing you know obviously the World Series doing the football on Sunday, Thursday and traveling on a private jet. And I also said Joe would be embarrassed by it. Joe doesn't want to hear about you know people making a big deal that he's you know doing seven games and seven nights. But I now go back to you because I think one of the craziest travels schedules that I ever remember and it wasn't on private jets a couple of years ago when the Rangers were in the Eastern Conference Finals going against Tampa and I believe the Blackhawks were in the Western Conference Finals against the Kings and you're doing the Rangers radio but then the very next night you were doing the Western Conference Finals for NBC Sports that was that the most challenging travel schedule that you've ever had?
1: It was. That was crazy. And and just to get back to Joe Buck for a second, I sent Joe a text right as he started that stretch during the World Series. And he had, I think, three NFL games in five days. And I, I wrote something to the effect of, uh, have a great week, slacker. <laughs> he, he, he had a pretty funny response back. But, you know, you can't even compare what what he's doing to what any of us have done, because those are such high profile games. And I give him so much credit. You know, first of all, it, it's, it's an entire week-long process to prepare for one NFL game normally. And he had three and five days plus the World Series. So, you know, I give him a lot of credit. There, there are a lot of, you know, if I if I make a mistake on a Rangers radio game, really not a lot of people would notice. But, you know, if Joe makes a mistake or misspeaks on a World Series game or, you know, a Thursday night football game, the only game going on at the time, there, there's a lot of pressure. So That's I, a great I give point. So much so much credit. He's one of the greatest of all time. Yes, and, he is. Uh, now he's going to be inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and I'm sure Cooperstown is not, not that far behind. But that was probably my craziest stretch. It was 2014. That was the first year that I was asked to do the Western Conference Final on NBC, which was a huge honor. And wouldn't you know it, for only the second time in about 15 years, the Rangers, that same year, advanced to the Eastern Conference Final. So... <laughs> You know, now I'm sitting there planning out the schedule and uh, both networks were great about, you know, going back and forth and coming in, you know, early on game day and not being there the night before. But it was, that year was New York and Montreal, the Rangers and Canadians and the LA Kings and Chicago Blackhawks. And I wound up working 12 of the 13 games in that conference. Wow. Wow. Missed the first Ranger-Montreal game just because of logistics, but worked 12 of the 13 next year, it was uh, not as crazy. It was the Rangers in Tampa and Chicago and Anaheim, but I didn't work all of the Western Conference games. Doc Emmerich did some of those. I've had other stretches in October you know, prior to this year during, quote, normal years where I would have four sports in the span of maybe six or seven days with football, baseball playoffs I've been involved with a couple of times, and then NHL and NBA, NHL regular season, NBA preseason. To me, those are the most fun times. You know, they are somewhat challenging because of all the studying and all the work you have to get done, but the adrenaline helps carry you through as well as your partners and the production folks. But I also feel like, and I'm sure you're the same way, I get so much work done on the road, on planes, Mm -hmm. in cars, uh, in hotel rooms. So there are almost less distractions when you're on the road than when you're at home. So I feel like uh, I'm able to get the work done even with those crazy schedules where I might have three or four different sports in the course of seven
0: to ten days with everything that you do and you're on the biggest of stages doing your four sports you seem to be very grounded to me and by that I mean you seem to have great respect for the people in the profession the people that watch you the people that listen to you you always seem to make time for everyone Uh, you don't come across in any way shape or form as having a big head and I can go on and on where does that stem from? Were you like that as a kid? Does that come from your parents? Did it, was there one individual that had the biggest impact on you to make sure that you stayed grounded?
1: You know, I've never really been asked that question before, Grant, but it was just how I was brought up. I would have to give both of my parents credit. I was pretty quiet as a kid. I was reserved. Um, I would open up when I turned on the tape recorder, I guess, to announce games as a youngster. But I would have to give them the credit. It was really all that I ever knew as far as uh, how to act and and how to treat people. So I guess I can't really take too much credit for that. It it would come from them.
0: You look back at everything that you've accomplished right now. If I told you, okay, Kenny, you are only going to be able to announce one game the rest of your life, which sport would you choose?
1: Well, I think for anybody in our profession, if you had to pick one game, probably say the Super Bowl you know for me I've had the opportunity to work a number of big events and I did work one Super Bowl on the world feed the international feed Giants Patriots Super Bowl 46 which was not seen in the U.S. but it was seen around the world you know also the Stanley Cup final I've worked it on radio now eight times and did one Stanley Cup final game on the TV side back in 2014 also filling in for Doc so you know, those would be the, the top two in my mind. Um, and I know you had Mike Breen on the podcast recently, and, and he's the he's the record holder for NBA Finals, and he does an unbelievable job. And Joe Buck does the World Series every year and, and the Super Bowl every three years. So I think for all of us, you know, those are the events that you strive for, you know, whether it's Al Michaels, Jim Nance, Joe Buck in the three-man rotation on the Super Bowl. But if, if you had to pick one, I, I would say it's the Super Bowl with the Stanley Cup Final. Not far behind, and like I said, I've, I've kind of dipped my toe in the water on both with the world feed of the Super Bowl and eight Stanley Cup final series on the radio. I've called baseball playoff games and NBA playoff games and some boxing matches and Olympics. So just very fortunate to be involved in all the events over the last 25 to 30 years.
0: You know, a little earlier, you talked about teaching to our youth, whether it's at a school or a broadcasting camp. A camp. What are one or two things? that you think are most important to an aspiring broadcaster? What's the message that you always like to get across?
1: Number one is the preparation, and that's what I learned uh, from my father and from other announcers uh, that I watched growing up. Uh, During my college years, I was an associate producer for Howie Rose on Mets Extra on WFAN. I would sit there with Howie at every Mets home game from 87 through early in the 90s season, and I learned the same thing from Howie, who's one of the most prepared broadcasters out there. I'm old school. I still have newspapers delivered. I do a lot of reading and, and research on the internet, on my iPad, et cetera. But I have a checklist for every game that I work. And it involves reading articles on both sides, you know, for the last five or six days, depending on what the event is, going back and watching old games, the last game that each team played, going through media guides and statistics and other information that's provided by the teams and the league and the network. So, I just spoke to a, a student this morning at South Carolina who, who had checked in with me and asked for some advice, and, and I told her the same thing. Uh, the preparation is the key, and the other piece of advice I would give is, whether you're in high school or college, is try to get as much experience as possible, even if it's not in the exact area that you're interested in. If you want to be on the air, if you get experience behind the scenes, that, that's a great thing as well. You know, I think back to my college days at NYU, and we had a fight for airtime on the radio station, on the school radio station, to broadcast men's and women's basketball games. Uh, You know, the DJs, the music department, they didn't want to give up their shows, and it was a battle. But now you can really broadcast any event you'd like to during your high school or college days on the internet. You don't need a radio station. So there are so many opportunities out there. I know a lot of the schools, ACC schools, Big Ten schools, Those conferences have networks and they allow students to partake, whether it's in front of the microphone, in front of the camera or behind the scenes. So just the number of opportunities out there now are are incredible. And, you know, the biggest things to me, like I said, are preparation and trying to take advantage of opportunities, whether it's internships or availabilities in high school and, and college as well.
0: Chemistry with your analyst is so important. I had Charles Davis on my last podcast and we talked about, you know, his first year working with Iron Eagle. And because of the pandemic, they weren't able to get together and they did a lot of Zoom chats and things of that nature to to get to know one another. You have worked, as I said, with over 200 analysts, which is remarkable. And many times you're probably working with an analyst for a short period of time and then you're working with somebody else or whatever the case may be. What advice there? How challenging can that be for, you know, working with somebody that you don't have a lot of in-game experience and still trying to do an A-plus broadcast?
1: Well, first of all, Charles Davis is one of my favorites. We worked about 10 games together through the years. He does a terrific job, and Ian Eagle's a good friend of mine, and I know they've been a great pairing this season, working together for the first time. I have worked with over 200. I have a long list, Grant, and I would say there are probably – 25 to 30 on that list who I only worked with once wow and many others who I probably worked with five to ten times and then there are some who I've worked hundreds of games with so it really runs the gamut and you know I think it's so important to have a a terrific partner and I always do research you know before the first time I work with my partners because um, you know I want to try and get into their minds what they're thinking Jonathan Vilma for example who I'm working with on the NFL this year for the first time he's a first year analyst we had a New Orleans Saints game early in the season and it was fascinating to hear his thoughts he went up against Drew Brees in practice every day uh, for six or seven years he played for Sean Payton for those years they won a Super Bowl together so I want to try and get the best out of my analysts and I mentioned Tim McCarver earlier I've worked football games with with Troy Aikman and I worked with Moose Johnston for 10 years and and Brian Baldinger and Anthony Munoz and Rondé Barber and Tim Green for seven years And on the hockey side, uh, Dave Maloney has been my partner on the Rangers now for 15 years. I worked games with John Davidson back in the day, who's considered uh, one of the greatest of all time. Joe Micheletti, Eddie Olchek, Pierre Maguire, Brian Boucher, and then Walt Clyde Frazier on basketball. So um, it's a fun list to keep. I'm I'm looking up at a picture on my wall with Jim Palmer, who I did a baseball game with. Wow. With Patrick Ewing, who was a color analyst during his playing days. He did a Knicks Summer League two days with me back in 1996. So... Uh, Just thinking about all the different memories I have, but really do try to bring out the best. And this year, similar to uh, what you mentioned with Ian and Charles Davis, I never met Jonathan Vildo until we wound up getting together for our first game. We had Zoom conversations with our entire crew, and he was hired over the summer. Fox normally holds a a seminar out in California in August, but obviously this year, uh, due to COVID, we couldn't uh, get together. So... Uh, It's definitely a bit of a challenge, you know, working with somebody who you never met before and only had Zoom conversations with. But I think so far, Jonathan is going pretty well. He's done a terrific job, and I think we'll only get better.
0: Fans have been talking a lot on social media about what it's like for them to watch a game with very few fans and, in many instances, no fans at all in the venues. From your perspective as an announcer, is there a difference?
1: So I had the experience in Edmonton during the NHL bubble, no fans in the building. And at first it was strange to walk into a 20,000-seat arena with no fans. And we had a great broadcast location about 20 rows up. But with no fans in the building, uh, I had referees tell me they could actually hear my play-by-play down on the ice. Wow. And it was strange during warm-ups when I had the headset off. You could hear everything. You could hear the sticks, the skates, you know, all of the passes, the puck hitting against the boards. You could hear the chatter. Uh, from the players and the coaches, but once the game started, I think the players felt the same way. Once they dropped the puck and I had the headset on and they were playing, it felt like a regular game. You didn't really notice or think about the fact that there were no fans in the building. I did have to remind myself to keep the energy and enthusiasm level high because I'm one who likes to keep the headset effects uh, pretty loud during the course of the game. Um, I'll probably be, you know, lose my hearing in about 10 or 15 (laughs) years because for 30 years, I've kept my headsets to the to the loudest volume, uh, but once the game started, like I said, it, it wasn't too much different with football. The stadiums are a lot bigger. It was it was pretty bizarre. The first two weeks we were in Detroit and Atlanta with 500 fans in each building. It was it was friends and family of the players, and that was pretty much it. I worked a game in Pittsburgh, week five against the Eagles. They had 5,000 fans, and they were loud. It sounded like 30,000, even though there were only 5,000 and the last couple of weeks we had 13,000 in in Miami we had about 10,000 in a game in Charlotte we had 3,000 last week in Washington so there are also some some fake you know crowd noise pumped in through our headsets some sound effects so uh, we're getting there you know we all look forward to the days when the stadiums and the arenas are full again but i think once the game starts you're not really thinking about it the fact that there aren't too many fans in the building.
0: Well, you have been so incredible to me over the years with your time, uh, whenever I reach out and need you and I cannot thank you enough, uh, You're you're incredible. Uh, You're so gifted at what you do. And of course, uh, the name Albert has had a profound impact on my life because of your dad and growing up and through that era. And uh, it's funny, I was talking to Mike Breen about this a couple of weeks ago and anyone else that lives in that area. I I think a lot of us would have never been sportscasters uh, had it not been for uh, Marv Albert. And but it's great to see. Uh, your success and and how great you have become at all four sports. And again, I can't thank you enough. You are, you're a top shelf individual and I'm grateful for you.
1: Well, Grant, I really appreciate you having me on. Always enjoy chatting. Uh, Look forward to hopefully seeing you soon and appreciate the kind words. Hope you and your listeners are staying healthy and safe. And I have a lot more stories. So hopefully we can (laughs) do this again one day.
0: Yeah, you got that. Thanks, Kenny. Appreciate it. Time for a little Q&A. And if you go to crowdquestion.com, it's easy to sign up. And then you can ask me a question. We're even taking voice questions now. This one is from Riley. Hey, Grant, do you think it's better for coaches to be emotional like Pete Carroll or even keeled like Bill Belichick? And does it matter by sport? You know, it doesn't matter. I've always said you have to be yourself. I mean, Tom Landry was a great football coach for the Dallas Cowboys, right? And he looked like a statue on the sideline. I think coaches know how to reach out to their players, uh, but they can't be phonies. And if they're phonies, they're not going to last long. I've always said, you know, in broadcasting, you have to be yourself. So uh, good question, Riley. And again, you can ask a voice question by going to crowdquestion.com. All right. Aaron says, at this point, would you rather have Joe Burrow, Justin Herbert, or Tua as your quarterback? I think they can all be very good. I like Joe Burrow a lot. I've been very impressed with Herbert. The issue with Tua is his health. And I'm watching him play. And first of all, he's uh, no question a dynamic player. Is he going to be able to withstand the hits? That's the only thing that concerns me about Tua. But you asked at this point, and again, it is a very, very small sample size. I love what I see uh, from Joe Burrow. Luke, what are your clubs of choice? Have you played golf since moving to Florida? I'm a Ping guy. I love Ping. I just absolutely love their product, everything about Ping. I love their reps. Uh, I love everything about what they stand for. Uh, the history at the Karsten factory. I love everything. So, um, and I've only played once and yes, I'm out there with my ping hat and my ping clubs. I absolutely love uh, ping. All right, Ernie, do you prefer doing a show alone like this or with another person? You know, I've never done a podcast before. So for right now, I love what I'm doing alone. I think it brings out me as an individual. Uh, You know, again, I'm uh, (laughs) unique, right? And on the radio, I used to do a show by myself for, you know, a long time. And then I had a partner and I made it work. But for the podcast, I really enjoy doing this alone. That's a very good question, by the way. All right. Phil says, did you dream of playing pro sports as a kid? I think we all grow up dreaming of playing pro sports. uh, And I was no different. So, yes, I did. And then I think you realize, even though I was a good athlete in high school, Uh, I wasn't good enough to play professionally, but yeah, I think we all do. I think we all do. All right, Brendan, will you ever have guests not from the sports world? It's cool to have our questions answered. Thanks for doing it. Yeah, I will. I'm going to try to get Harlan Coben on the uh, renowned New York times, bestselling author. Uh, I'm trying to branch out and have a couple of other guests that I think would be very, very interesting. So from time to time, uh, I will do that. And again, thanks for the questions. Go to, Crowdquestion.com. It's time for rant, 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 rant. Today's rant is brought to you by Newworks Plumbing, locally owned in Sacramento for 20 years. Leak detection, waterline repair, plumbing repair, bathroom plumbing, repiping for Kytek and copper pipes. Newworks Plumbing is a full service plumbing solution. No matter how small or how large your plumbing problem, they've got a fix for you. Newworks Plumbing has experienced technicians on call 24-7. For all of your plumbing needs, just go to newworksplumbing.com. That's N-E-W-W-R-X-plumbing.com. All right, so we're seeing college football games each and every week be postponed. We're seeing all the COVID cases going through NFL teams, right? And we're looking at all the statistics in many states in the country. And yet, the NBA is going to try to get together and have training camps starting in about two weeks, and they're going to kick off the season on December 22nd. And everyone is all excited about this week's draft and free agency, which is going on. And I would just say, hold your horses, because I'm still kind of perplexed how the NBA thinks that they're going to have a season up and running on December 22nd when we look at the COVID spikes pretty much all over the country. And my question is, if they can't do it in college football, if they can't keep the NFL locker rooms clean, and again, look at all of the positive cases. I mean, I'll go into the travel industry. There was a cruise line, an uh, upper-scale luxury cruise line that left Bermuda for the Caribbean, right? Now, think about this. You had to have a COVID test before you even got to the terminal, and once you got to the terminal, you were given a COVID test before you could get on the ship. And if both were negative, you were allowed to get on the ship. But before you did, okay, they sprayed all of your luggage, both checked and carry-on with disinfectant, okay? They sprayed your shoes, everything else. That ship had to return to port, I think within 48 hours. And they ended up having multiple COVID cases on that ship, So if they can't do that, how are they going to do it in the NBA? How are you going to get teams to practice, fly to cities, stay in hotels, and play games? I got to tell you, folks, I don't think it's going to happen. I hope I'm wrong here. I want to see the NBA as much as you do. But I'm looking at what's going on, and don't be surprised. Don't be surprised if the NBA season does not start for a couple of months. Uh, Again, I hope I'm wrong, but how are you going to start a season with everything else that's going around in the country? Maybe the NBA needs to put the brakes on for a while. Maybe that's the best thing. All right, that is my rant for today. Hope you enjoyed today's podcast with Kenny Albert from Fox Sports. Make it a great weekend. And as always, thanks for listening. If you don't like that, with Grant Niep